I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examines. Apocalyptic movements are alive and well in America. Do the country's historical roots inspire survivalism? And why is the human mind drawn to the idea of the end of times? And I think there's something interesting going on here. Um, and I saw it in the prepper videos that mm-hmm. I watched and some of the people that I met. There is a sense that these preppers are they're preparing not so much for their fears as, as for their fantasies. And later, do the biblical references to the apocalypse and the book of Revelations help explain othering and fear of immigrants? If we think of the United States as an ultimate destination and only the home of those righteous, then then there's also a dynamic of exclusion. There is in the definitely in the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature in general of those who must be kept outside. The prepper movement, the book of Revelations, and our fascination with the end of times. That's coming up on KCRW's Life Examined. Throughout history, there have often been a group of people who believe that the end of the world as they know it is just around the corner. According to one survey conducted in 2020, nearly one in five Americans said they believed a global pandemic would be the most likely cause of an apocalypse. The same number pointed to climate change, and only slightly fewer said a nuclear war. It's no coincidence, therefore, that apocalyptic fervor coincides with times of chaos and uncertainty. But can preparing for an apocalypse provide a degree of comfort? And is America the natural home for today's modern-day survivalist? In his latest book called Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, Irish author Mark O'Connell explores the survivalist destinations around the globe. He also examines why people, or preppers as they're called, feel the need to go to extreme lengths to get ready for the end of time. From luxury underground bunkers to garages stuffed with canned goods, water, and gasoline, O'Connell notes that this movement has as much to do with fantasy as it does with fear. Mark O'Connell, welcome to Life Examined. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Let's talk a little bit about the history of survivalism. Uh, Is this a 20th century phenomenon or or something that, that really goes far back into history? Survivalism per se, as in the kinds of, uh, I guess, doomsday prepper kind of movements that I uh, look at in, in my book, um, is, I think, very much uh, uh, a kind of modern contemporary phenomenon. But, you know, it has has its roots in, I guess, uh, cyclical kind of moments of apocalyptic fervor that have uh, cropped up really throughout history. You know, it's been, um, it's been something that uh, tends to uh, rear its head, the idea of the apocalypse that um, I think times of particular kind of social and political upheaval is when the idea of the apocalypse, uh, the myth, the sort of apocalyptic myths uh, tend to be something that people kind of uh, grab onto as a way of explaining, I suppose, the sense of chaos and uncertainty around the future. Mm. It almost seems like psychologically, the human mind is drawn to this idea of end of times. Um, and it's one that kind of thematically that just plays out over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, to put it in sort of sort of pop psychological terms, I guess we are creatures who thrive and uh, move through the world via stories. We're kind of mm-hmm. narrative uh, telling creatures. And one of the things that the apocalypse does is it creates a sense of narrative. The literary critic Frank Kermode uh, has an amazing book called A Sense of an Ending, where he talks about the fact that we're born, as he says, in, in the midst of things. Um, we're born kind of in, in medias res, uh, and we have no sense of really where we came from or, mm. or where we're going. 
Um, and what the apocalypse does is it allows us to kind of project ourselves into an end. So it gives a kind of a, a sense of narrative coherence to times of you know, chaos and uncertainty. It's really interesting. And it also makes me think that we each perhaps like to think that we're living in the most radical of times or that this is the era in which it could happen. I think there's almost an, an inflation in the sense of self and time and culture that, that, that this is the moment. Because, of course, this is, <laughs> this is the time in which we're alive, right? That everything feels heightened because this is, this, is this is when we're on this planet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we kind of uh, like to flatter ourselves, I suppose, right. by believing that we are the ones who will witness the end. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of an understandable psychological impulse in a way. Um, we're the special ones. We're the yes. chosen ones who get to see how the whole thing kind of winds up. So there's a kind of a narcissism to that, I suppose, in a way. As you began this kind of grand exploration into survivalism, um, did you find that in the U.S. this was particularly kind of the feelings were, were were fervent here? That this is where a lot of the action was taking place. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, so I start out the book uh, really looking at the sort of whole scene of um, doomsday preppers of people mm. who are, you know, digging bug bunkers and stockpiling tinned goods and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, talking about the, the imminence of, of the end times. And you know, that's a, it's an international movement in a lot of ways. There are preppers in, in Ireland and in Britain and across Europe, but really um, the most kind of uh, fervent and intense uh, stuff tends to come, I guess, unsurprisingly, out of the US. And, and there's, I think, a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is that America seems to me to be uh, a country with a particularly kind of intense relationship historically and culturally with the apocalypse. I mm. mean, America itself, the United States, as a, as a colonial enterprise, was kind of born out of a moment of apocalyptic fervor in, in Europe with the pilgrims and so on. Um, and there's something about the prepper movement, and I write about this a little bit in the book, uh, that sort of recapitulates that uh, sense of fervor of the the first kind of European colonizers of America and the pilgrims and so on. Um, and part of it, I think, has to do with, um, well, you know, when preppers talk about the collapse of civilization, mm. they're often talking about um, a situation where um, there's no more government, where you can't rely on you know, uh, society, uh, quote unquote, you can't rely on your fellow people. And it's just you, the individual, the kind of rugged individual, uh, pitting yourself against uh, the wilderness or, you know, um, other people, savage people and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a, a sense of kind of a return to some of the kind of darker mythologies uh, at the sort of heart of that moment in American history with with the prepper movement, I think. It is interesting thinking about this, right? Um, you mentioned the pilgrims, and, and, and there was this feeling of life versus death, right? freedom versus uh, enslavement, or, or so many other ways that, that do permeate through, uh, through America. And this constant sense of living on an extreme, uh, moving westward into the unknown. And th that really does seem, the way you talk about it, almost unique compared to the rest of the globe. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult to talk um, too specifically about this stuff and, and to be too categorical about it. But definitely um, 
when I started looking into, uh, you know, uh, apocalyptic movements, certainly contemporary apocalyptic movements, uh, there's a definite sense that America has a real taste for this stuff in a way mm. that, you know, maybe other countries don't necessarily, uh, don't necessarily have. When you began to sample these different uh, prepper movements across the U.S., did you find that there was kind of like a, an archetypal figure, uh, a certain personality structure or type that that kept cropping up across the landscape? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, to some extent, it's a broad church, but a certain mm. kinds of uh, ideological, kind of pre-existing ideological uh, conditions yeah. kept kind of cropping up. Um, one of which is a real investment in uh, the, the idea of the individual um, as opposed to uh, community. So, mm. so many of the people that I looked at in the book and so many of the movements are kind of predicated around the idea that you can't rely on other people to get you through times of uh, difficulty and catastrophe. Um, so preppers tend to be all about looking after themselves, mm. their families, um, sort of battening down the hatches, um, you know, stocking up on on as much kind of stuff as they can, and to hell with everyone else, but also kind of defending themselves against against others. Um, and that was a kind of a strand that I saw cropping up uh, in in lots of the different kinds of um, movements that I looked at. So one of the things I did was I spent some time in uh, a very remote part of uh, South Dakota, although you could argue that most of South Dakota is probably quite remote. Yeah. But, um, a former um, dairy farm that a guy called Robert Vecino, who's a kind of, I suppose, a kind of an apocalyptic real estate entrepreneur had bought. Um, and he sort of specializes in, you could say, luxury apocalyptic solutions, yeah. I suppose, um, kind of sort of very, very well appointed sort of five star quality uh, bunkers with things like um you know, private cinemas and, uh, you know, wine cellars and uh, hydroponic vegetable gardens and so on. Very well kind of appointed uh, luxury apocalypse bunkers. And, and he had bought this place in South Dakota and he was converting it into uh, what he called the world's largest survival community. Wow. And really the kind of um, the rhetoric around that, the sort of sales rhetoric and also kind of uh, quite conspiratorial political rhetoric was that some kind of collapse scenario was coming. Uh, some kind of um, you could almost take take your pick of you know what what you were most afraid of or most sort of uh, fantasying about whether it's a nuclear war or uh, a viral pandemic or you know whatever it might be but in, in these scenarios um, the government is not going to protect you mm. and uh, you're going to need to kind of band together with a small group of uh, other like-minded kind of individualists if that's not too much of a contradiction in terms and uh, protect yourself against sort of uh, you know, humanity at large. Mm. Um, and so that's, um, see, all, all of these things seem to me to be, I guess, implicitly uh, political in that if you're arguing that um, you need to protect yourself and that um, other people are kind of what you need to protect yourself against, um, whether it be sort of urban populations or what have you, um, that, that seems to me to be quite a political uh, standpoint, and uh, it's it's no coincidence. I think that most of the kind of doomsday preppers and uh, apocalyptic preparedness kind of aficionados that I looked at in the book tend to, although not exclusively, but they tend to come from quite right wing uh, kind of political sort of milieus. Hmm. Are there any kind of more urban or city related prepper movements? Is is it? Do you find there is also a number of people there who who are invested in this? 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't go into it too much in the book, but there are, you know, there's a New York City prepper uh, group uh, and, you know, people in Manhattan who kind of meet and talk about their kind of uh, preps and so on. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, there's a tendency to kind of uh, categorize these people and sort of um, stereotype them as purely kind of rural, sort of backwoods type people right. who um, have all this space around them and, you know, talk about bugging out into the wilderness and so on. Um, and one of the things that I started to find quite quickly when I uh, was writing the book is that I would be talking about prepping to people, you know, spending a lot of time watching YouTube videos and reading forums and it kind of just came out in conversation. And when, when you do that, what happens is you kind of, um, you provoke people to talk about their own relationship to this stuff. And what I found was that, you know, there are preppers in my own neighborhood. Um, I met someone at a, I did a, a reading in a bar, really just around the corner from my house. And I got talking to someone afterwards and he uh, told me about his um, prepping uh habits and sort of uh, preparedness techniques and he was like literally a neighbor and you know people i write in the book about um a friend of mine who works in publishing and is a you know very left-wing person and a feminist which is not the kind of um stereotype you would imagine of of, of preppers and you know she's got a, a bug out bag under her bed ready to go at all times so yeah there's i mean it, it's it's easy to kind of um speak in general terms about uh the kinds of identities that tend to coalesce around this idea but you know it's a it's a, it's a pretty broad church really mm. you you said that these these folks in, envision many different ways in which uh the world could be turned upside down and they'll have to rely on their own kind i i, I wonder what are there any kind of more common theories you came up with would it be a plague would it be be some kind of a civil war what does the end of times kind of look like for a lot of these people yeah, well, I, I started the book out of a place of my own anxiety. So, you know, sure. I, I, I went out into the world and, and looked at all these other people, but it, it really began from a place of kind of incoherent anxiety about the future for myself and for my family. Um, and for me, climate change, of course, is is the, the big kind of locus of right. uh, apocalyptic unease. But what I started to find was that... Um, Actually, the, the more fervent kind of uh, apocalyptic obsessives, for want of a better term, tended not to be all that concerned about climate change. They tended to be concerned about um, the prospect of a nuclear strike from uh, North Korea, for instance. A viral pandemic is, is uh, you know, quite a, quite a common one. Asteroids hitting, mm -hmm. um, things like um, electromagnetic pulse attacks, all these kinds of things that, you know, your average person would not spend that much time uh, thinking about, but if you're if you're kind of um, of an anxious disposition, learning about these things is uh, is quite a quite a trip. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of it covers the gamut, and I, I just can't help thinking how um, in this in this era of social media or of extreme media propaganda, if you're looking for this stuff, it's out there, and it's only gonna start to really grow in your mind in terms of the possibility of it. Right, and it kind of. Uh, you know, it, it coalesces in a way with so much of the kind of conspiratorial thinking that we're seeing the rise of right now. And yeah. there's a kind of a, I guess it's a family resemblance, and there always has been, in a sense, uh, between the sort of conspiratorial thinking and the kind of uh, myths of apocalypse. And, and I think that comes from, again, this sense of explaining the world, mm. of putting a kind of a, a tight 
narrative kind of structure around what is inherently quite chaotic and difficult to understand, whether it's the sort of power dynamics of, of your own time or the kind of uh, unknowable um, sort of darkness of, of the future. Yeah. Some of the, the people you profiled in, in the book surprised me because they were extremely wealthy. Uh, moguls with, with a lot of money to burn. Peter Thiel, I believe, right, came up in this. C- can you talk about the just the, the, the kind of one percenter aspects of the prepper movement? Yeah, well, one of the things I look at in the book is, um, well, there's a couple of places where I kind of take this in, one of which is uh, the uh, idea of New Zealand as a kind of a, a preferred location hmm. for weathering um, kind of apocalyptic collapse scenarios. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of a perception, um, maybe a little bit less so now because they've, they've changed the, the laws somewhat since then, but certainly around the time I started writing this book, which was, uh, I guess, 2016, 2017, uh, there was a perception out there of New Zealand as the place where lots of kind of Silicon Valley tech billionaires were, uh, it was like a, a, you know, it was a big thing at the time to, to buy up land down there and to, you know, um, start building, you know, apocalyptic compounds and stuff, you know, for various reasons, uh, one of which is just that New Zealand is far away from everywhere else. Yeah. It's, you know, it's way down the bottom of the world. It's a very safe and stable environment. It's uh, relatively insulated from the effects of climate change. It's politically kind of quite solid. All of these things make it an attractive prospect. So, yeah, I, I, I um, at the time I started looking into this, Peter Thiel, uh, there was a lot of news stories uh, at first in New Zealand and then sort of subsequently internationally about how Thiel had uh sort of effectively bought New Zealand citizenship as a way of buying quite a large amount of land in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, and uh, the reason he was doing this was because he wanted to build a kind of an apocalyptic compound down there. So I went I went down and, and sort of uh, investigated that. Just curious, what, what did you find when you were there? What, well, what... I've, I found a big field by a lake. <laughs> mm. That was the, the sort of interesting thing about it. I, you know, I went down there um, and I, I did find the, the, the land that he had bought, but there's nothing on it. So, you know, it's, it's quite an absurd part of the book in that I'm writing about all these um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of paranoid ideas about uh, what these Silicon Valley people know about the future and what they're doing. And there's almost kind of a sense that you're going to find a kind of a Bond villain lair down there. Yeah. Uh, and really, it's just a bunch of sheep in a field <laughs> by a very nice lake. So, you know, I spent... Uh, I spent a day, you know, I hired bikes and uh, with a, a, an acquaintance of mine uh, who, who took me down there, hired bikes, and we did a really pleasant uh, bike ride around around a lake in New Zealand. It was very idyllic and not at all apocalyptic, actually. Uh, yeah. But that's that's the life of the writer, at least at least yeah. my life. There's a there's a growing economy around this, isn't there? Uh, you talked about it a little bit in in South Dakota, but but there are people now that are selling this as a future, as a safety plan. How big of a of an economy is it? Um, well, it depends on who you listen to. I guess mm. if you listen to the people who are selling it, um, you're going to find that it's it's a, a you know a boom area. I think it's still pretty niche. Um, but so you know things like uh, sort of you know, wealthy individuals buying land in New Zealand. I mean, that that is a genuine thing. And, I, you know, I spoke to people uh, over the course of writing the book. Um, sometimes it just casually it came up in conversation that they've been looking for land down there and so on. So that that's quite a big thing. The other thing is, um, as you say, like de- dedicated kind of uh, 
you know, companies who, whose whole thing is to, is to build these compounds with, you know, golf courses and sort of, uh, all these sorts of, um, uh, you know, uh, defensive, uh, provisions and so on. Um, and that's, there's, there's quite a few of those companies, uh, unsurprisingly, most of them tend to be American. Mm. Um, and a lot of their customers tend to be American, but they have facilities, um, all over the world, including, including Europe. And yeah, so Robert Ficino, who is the, the guy that I spent time with in South Dakota, he's got a number of these facilities. The place that I visited was on the sort of less luxurious end of the scale, the kind of, uh, you know, kind of lower middle class. Hmm. apocalyptic sort of uh, solution but, um this was kind of um a situation where you buy you buy uh a bunker that is basically an empty shell hmm. and you kind of fit it out to your own specifications and uh it it the idea would be that it would kind of develop into a kind of a, a community of of like-minded individuals but there are all different kinds of um uh sort of depending on your level of wealth and how much you want to spend there are various different sort of levels you can go in at. Wow. Did you ever find anything that just kind of blew your mind or anything very bizarre when you entered some of these bunkers? The only bunkers that I physically entered uh, were those empty shells in, mm. in South Dakota. So, uh, I mean, that that's an extraordinary place. And I write quite a lot in the book about the, the landscape and, and the sort of uh, almost surreal aspect of the place. Um, it was built initially in, in the um, Second World War as a, a munitions storage facility. So there are all these sort of hexagonal uh, bunkers. There are, I think, 550 of them wow. um, across a, a ranch that is, I think, about three quarters the size of Manhattan. And it's just an extraordinary kind of vista of a place. I mean, it is it almost, it, it, it almost seems like an alien landscape um, and just like incredibly beautiful and also very strange and sort of a little bit uncanny. Uh, so that was a really, uh, a really strange place to visit, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, quite quite beautiful in a in a quite bleak sort of way. Mm. As we're talking about this, and I'm reflecting on the the stories I hear about preppers, or or frankly, I I just think of the number of dystopic novels that have come out in the last decade. It, it seems almost never ending at this point, which is something we could talk about as well. But c- correct me if I'm wrong. I mean. For some people, there's almost a sense of romanticism in this, this idea of returning to like a simpler time uh, that, you know, we'll get back to the land or to the way that life should be or clans or or things of that. I mean, did you pick up on any of that as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is an, an element of almost kind of uh, coziness to this. Right. You know? this, some of these apocalyptic fantasies are... Um, you know, almost kind of, uh, you know, slightly twee in the way that you've just sort of put your finger on. And I think there's something interesting going on here. Um, and I saw it, you know, in the prepper videos that mm-hmm. I watched and some of the people that I met. Um, there is, and I say in the book, a sense that these preppers are, they're preparing not so much for their fears as, as for their fantasies. Hmm. Um, and so a lot of those fantasies have to do with um, a return to a kind of an imagined uh, former uh, masculinity that's been kind of lost right. uh, over the decades. Um, and so a lot of these fantasies have to do with, yeah, the kind of um, the traditionally kind of uh, strong male provider. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the government collapses, all these kind of um, structures that undergird our society fall away. And all of a sudden, you've got to be this sort of um, resourceful, strong man who can sort of build a toilet out of scratch. Yeah. And and those kind of um, rugged skills that have become 
I would say somewhat devalued over the last few generations, they suddenly become uh, the real currency again. And so there's a fantasy that that goes with that for sure. And I think just on the sort of the level of um, fiction, people love to imagine the end of the world. They love to imagine, um, I, I think part of it has to do with, you know, a quite similar phenomenon of, you know, how would I deal with, with something like that? Yeah. How would I protect my family? Would I be one of the ones who, would I be one of the first ones who would get eaten? Or would I be, you know, one of the people who fights off the zombies? Mm. And I think one of the things I realized as soon as I started to look into this was that I would be, uh, I would definitely be in the first wave of deaths. <laughs> uh, I don't think I would have a stomach for yeah. uh, apocalyptic survival. Yeah. You and me both won't be taken down very quickly. <laughs> Um, a, a public radio host and a journalist, of course. We, right. we don't have. We're to... not needed in this no. post-apocalyptic well, world. Just... I think that's that's the thing. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the takeaway here. <laughs> but but you know, I, I, just to continue on this thread, I think it's an interesting one. I mean, and, and part of it is is just thinking, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, which is just how disconnected we feel from real things. You know, we're on our phones all day. We're on our computers all day. There's little, there's a very, uh, there's not much sense of urgency sometimes to life as it passes in front of us, right? And this is, this is kind of, this is the grand story playing out in front of us. This is the return. I, there's just something to me that seems very rich there in, in that conversation, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, I, I'm very critical of a lot of these movements and I, you know, uh, I'm quite critical of the kind of political subtexts that are running through a lot of them, but I absolutely get that. And I think a lot of people do, um, that sense of, you know, a feeling of kind of radical disconnection mm. from, uh, from nature, from one's own humanity and its place within nature. All of these things are things that people think about either subconsciously or consciously because our, you know, we're so far from the source of what we live on, you know? Yes. Uh, there's a moment in the book that I write about, uh, just kind of a moment of, uh, I guess, in a way, panicked clarity where, you know, I was in um, Heathrow Airport. It was on the way back from an event I was doing for my previous book and uh, was sitting in a sushi restaurant and just had this real powerful sense of, uh, you know, what, watching people consuming all these... Um, different kinds of fish and all these people coming and going, getting on flights, coming off flights. And just a sense of like, this is a very strange way to be living and this is not sustainable. Mm. Um, and I think uh, there is a sense with some of these apocalyptic fantasies that, you know, uh, it's going to be tough, but we're going to get back to uh, nature. We're going to yeah. get back to a more pure way of, of living, which is, of course, I think a, it's a fantasy, but it is a, it's a potent one. Yeah. If we keep the, the current moment in, in the frame of conversation here, the pandemic, you were working on this book, I, I take it well before this moment happened. So I, I wonder for you, when suddenly this came online, did, did you feel like, oh my God, this it's happening? Or if, if there was a prepper movement before, it's only going to be expedited moving <laughs> forward. What was it like for you when, when we kind of, this all happened, I guess? Well, it was, it was a deeply strange experience full yeah. of lot, lots of kind of uh, surreal and ironic moments, as it was, you know, for everyone. You didn't have to be publishing a book yeah, yeah. at all, let alone a book about the apocalypse for it to be a deeply strange moment. But yeah, I mean, there was a sense of, uh, I think, profound irony in the fact that, you know, I'd spent two, two and a half years looking into this stuff. And at the moment I was about to publish the book, something close to or it's seeming close to an apocalyptic event was actually unfolding mm. as it was about to come out i'll never forget getting the you know when you publish a book you get 
a certain amount of copies of your book from your publisher a couple of weeks before it comes out and I received uh, the copies of my book from my American publisher and the pandemic had just had just become a very real thing at that point and uh, the first lockdown here in Ireland was, was just happening and I remember the uh, DHL guy handing me the box and he was wearing gloves and a mask and I had to put on gloves to open the box and I was sort of seeing encountering my own book for the first time which is a quite thrilling moment for a writer but also feeling and this was at the time when the kind of discussion around the disease uh was largely around you know picking it up from surfaces and i remember thinking could i actually get covid from this book about the apocalypse that i published and it was was so many things like that so it was a very strange experience to be publishing at that time but you know and, and the sort of um i suppose the conversation around the book at the time it came out I guess, inevitably turned around this idea that, you know, did, did he know something that, that we don't know? But of course, that only goes so far because, I mean, if you read the book, you'll see that I, I think I mentioned viral pandemics once, possibly twice. It really mm. it barely comes into the book at all. So I somehow managed to write an entire book about the apocalypse, and which came out at a time of unprecedented kind of apocalyptic uh, resonance without mentioning the actual thing yeah. that was causing it. So it, there was a sense of it being both... Um, extremely uh, well-timed and also extremely badly timed because, you know, climate change, of course, fell off the kind of map there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a strange, strange moment. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Well, as we begin to to wrap this, this conversation up, where do you, where do you see these movements going? Are, Are we part of a trend or do you think that this is, this is something that's here to stay and may just continue to, to grow? Well, I think, you know, it, it's almost impossible to imagine uh, human civilization without the idea of the apocalypse. You know, we, uh, in a way, the sort of our civilization in the West, which is so heavily informed by Christianity, is in some ways built on a foundation of apocalyptic ideas. Mm-hmm. Christianity is, you know, began as an apocalyptic kind of uh, sect in a way. Um, and so, so, so much of that still kind of persists in our culture and it, it it's certainly not going anywhere but i think um the particular time that we're living through is extremely intense in this regard and that you sort of when you talk about the apocalypse you have to remember that it it's always been with us and mm-hmm. it's in some ways always been the end of the world for for certain groups of people at some time um but at the same time we are living through a very intense kind of moment with uh with climate change and you know you add the pandemic into the mix and i think you're going to see um a resurgence and a kind of a a, a much kind of a stronger resurgence of, of apocalyptic ideas and i think this is something that happens after large-scale kind of catastrophic events and traumatic cultural kind of moments is you get um lots of people uh kind of coming together and coalescing around the idea of uh, preparing for the next thing so i think you know prepping is probably going to Uh, continue to be a sort of boom area um, as we move out of the pandemic. Mark O'Connell, thank you for the time and joining us today. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Once again, that was Mark O'Connell. He's a journalist and author of Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back. Still to come, to understand the roots of apocalyptic thinking, we need to turn to early religious texts. Two professors join us for a closer look at the book of Revelations. And as always, if you missed any of our shows, head on over to Apple Podcasts for the full library. There you can find last week's episode on authenticity. This is Life Examines. 
We'll be back in a moment. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Mark O'Connell, author of Notes from an Apocalypse, explain why America's rugged individualism is perfectly suited to the prepper movement. But what can we learn about the apocalypse from religious texts, and in particular, the Bible? The last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelations, has inspired art and literature. Its darker side has justified wars, discrimination, and immigration policies. It's also led many Christian groups to believe the end of the world is imminent. Joining me to explain the religious roots of the apocalypse are Professor Jacqueline Hidalgo at Williams College and Professor Yijian Lin, professor at Yale University. Lin's upcoming book is titled Immigration and Apocalypse, The Revelation of John and the History of American Immigration. Well, Professor Jacqueline Hidalgo and Professor Yijian Lin, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for having me. Well, Professor Adalgo, let's begin with you. And before we kind of dive into some of the texts here, I wonder, where do you think this fascination with the end of times comes from? That is a great and complicated question. And I think I struggle with ever wanting to pin down things in any sort of one origin. I think, you know, for for humans and, and for us as scholars of religion, humans are always grappling in some ways with the meaning of being given a conscious life that has an end, mm. right? We, we know that we will die. Um, we, and especially in the ancient world, we would have been much more surrounded by death as part of life, um, by other human deaths as part of life than many people, certainly people living in more elite contexts are now. Um, That is definitely a factor, but I think that another factor can can be more particular. And so in times, fascinations can look very different in different moments because it is often more about the particular crises and situations that, that people are confronting. When I was it's easier for me to talk about the example of the book of revelation which is generally posited as a text produced and circulated among people who at the very least perceive themselves to be minoritized under a a dominating empire and that in that context there is a certain crisis of power of meaning of knowledge that is being related to or being trying to be that 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 people were trying to grapple with um i think that you can see oftentimes in u.s history when we've looked at very specific kinds of end times oriented movements they are in the midst of moments of social flux and change they are representing a struggle over the meaning of things to some extent. And that is why I think it is important to think of that kind of revelatory knowledge relationship to the end times crisis. There is a struggle of meaning that is fundamental to the questions prompting it. Mm. Professor Lin, I I want to bring you in here and and also start with looking at this in in very broad strokes. Uh, 
Why, why do you think that we're fascinated by this question of an apocalypse or end of time? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think for all the reasons that Professor Hidalgo has mentioned in thinking about end of life or end of consciousness, I think also we're aesthetically driven in some way to want a satisfactory ending or some sort of climactic telos to which we're all sort of headed toward. And I mean, I, th- I think we see that in a lot of the narratives that we create in drama and, and text. Um, and I, I think the book of Revelation offers a sort of fantastic, dramatic, climactic end um, that seems, I mean, both horrifying and satisfactory, depending on your perspective, um, that I think we're aesthetically also very inclined toward. You've looked really closely at this book of Revelations um, and and have been trying to frame it also within uh, movements and political movements in American history. Can Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so I have been focusing particularly on the understanding of the identity of the United States or America broadly as an apocalyptic identity and conception. So thinking about from its quote unquote discovery up until today, thinking of America as exceptional, as climactic, um, as uh, an ultimate destination in the minds of those who first came to colonize it um, and then create it um, into the the nation that it is today. So there is this ideation of America, I mean, we know this through American exceptionalism and its understanding of um, sort of as a beacon and as a, a moral center for the world, right, in, in the way that uh, American political leaders like to talk about the nation. So there's this conception of an equation of America and the United States with the New Jerusalem, which is the, the new heaven or the new city in which God dwells, in which um, all the saved dwell at the very end of the book. So there's a use of that language, and I take a look at the way that has driven um our understanding of who belongs and who doesn't belong in the United States. So more specifically in our stance and perspective toward immigrants and in immigration policy making. So if we think of the United States as an ultimate destination and only the home of those righteous, then then there's also a dynamic of exclusion. There is in the definitely in the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature in general of those who must be kept outside. And that also carries through in the understanding of Uh, immigration and the narratives we create about immigration to the United States. So those who are kept out are generally equated with those who are diseased, which is highly relevant, unfortunately, in our current uh, crisis, Um, but also those who are immoral, those who are sexually deviant, those who are um, corrupting influences, and also um, the kind of language and rhetoric we use to describe these people oftentimes is those who are dirty, those who are bestial, so as dogs. And those, that, that language comes also um, out of Revelation, that, that kind of othering, exclusive, and violent language that we find describing those who must be kept out of the New Jerusalem. So that is the dynamic that I focus on in the book. I mean, ultimately, this sounds, I mean, deeply politicized um, and, and quite, quite hateful in, in many ways. How did you make sense of all of this? Well, I think I think the metaphor of thinking of the United States and of America before that as 
a heavenly destination um, and a kind of a paradise or utopia was quite positive and productive in some ways. And it was very politically expedient, right, to inspire people to imagine this new place, well, new to them, um, as refuge, as a haven. Um, and and we see that in the names across the United States. It was a new beginning, right? We have all these new cities, New York and New Haven and um, New England, right? All of these uh, new starts. So there was this understanding of something that could be built anew. I mean, problematic to that, of course, is that there were people already here. So there was an erasure of that. Um, but there was also this hope that was being held out. So there's something that could be seen as positive in this metaphor. But I think metaphors are quite dangerous in some ways because there is a flip side to that. And so if you're going to adopt an, a positive apocalyptic metaphor, it might carry within it also this very negative exclusionary uh, imaginary that goes along with it. So I think I think it, it can serve um, positive purposes, but uh, unfortunately it carries with it other dimensions as well. Um, Professor Hidalgo, I I wonder how you see the, this question of apocalypticism playing out also currently, maybe more symbolically or metaphorically. Do, do we still see this around us quite a bit? Definitely. Um, I, I think what has been most fascinating for me in the last year and a half, um, but but even before that, is seeing how differently it gets played out. Something I really appreciate that Professor Lin was pointing to is that different people take this apocalyptic framework in different directions. Mm. And that this sort of both anxiety about the end of days, but also hope for what uh, end times or what a kind of radical transformation might entail uh, they can get keyed in very different ways. And I'd say what's interesting is in the last year, I saw a proliferation uh, on the one hand of people who felt that there was something apocalyptic about COVID hmm. as also being related to the climate crisis and climate change in a kind of apocalyptic like this is a potentially civilization transforming or ending moment. And these are people maybe more generally thought of as being on the political left in the United States who are generally thought of as being less apocalyptically inclined in a classic sense, um, but that you could see that playing out. On the flip side, you saw the people who are more traditionally associated mm. with the apocalyptic orientation. Um, you saw that the kind of more right-wing white evangelicals, they were not so convinced of COVID as, a, as an apocalyptic plague, but there was a definitive apocalyptic mythology that surrounded Donald Trump, especially in the, the QAnon movement, and that we saw manifest on January 6th. And I think that spoke to some of the, the dynamics that Professor Lin was pointing to in the history of the United States quite pointedly. At the same time, I think what has also been really interesting uh, has been the publications of certain anti-apocalyptic manifestos of, um, I'm thinking of one that came out in March of 2020, very soon after the, the sort of um, crisis point around the pandemic hit the United States, 
um, on the Indigenous Action Network that described itself as an anti-apocalyptic manifesto. Mm. So I, I, I think it has been interesting the way that apocalyptic rhetoric from different angles has been picked up and has traveled and that it serves as a kind of locus for certain forms of making meaning, contesting meaning and contesting belonging, um, both in the moment and in the future in ways that I think track very much with, with what Professor Lin was talking about. Hmm. I also wonder, Professor Hidalgo, and I don't know how much you've looked at this, but I mean, just the constant reams of literature that we see or stories or fictions about apocalypticism. I mean, has that ever just caught your attention as to how this doesn't <laughs> seem to go away ever? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that this is, um, you know, something that was really interesting to me and what drew me into this field, of course, was earlier generations of what we might even call right dystopian fiction um, and dystopian cinema. Uh, this mm. is ranging from, you know, thinking of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower um, through to The Hunger Games or um, or things like that. That sort of a appeal to the, the, the dystopian side of apocalyptic and the way that it, it also is a, a opportunity, this sort of use of that kind of dystopian fantastic is an opportunity to reveal uh, some facets of human social relations seen from a different angle. Hmm. It's, you know, in, in the case of the parable of the sower, a lot of people have been bringing Octavia Butler back up lately because of the way that she revealed uh, certain dynamics that have persisted, but were maybe less apparent to the, the general public when she first wrote the novel. And then I'm struck by the use of uh, the Hunger Games symbolically in Myanmar and in the protests in Myanmar. Yeah. And again, the ways that that, you know, that sort of dystopian fiction can also help uh, underscore certain social dynamics that are maybe not always as, as present in the moment that the fiction is written, but it allows for that kind of heightened crisis sensibility that underscores certain things. And I think this is another point that Professor Lin was pointing to that she didn't say it quite overtly. Apocalypse really lend it, lends itself to a binary framework, you know, a kind of clear cut dividing line between good and evil. Uh, between, in the case of the Book of Revelation, right, God's army and Satan's army. And that has its perils, um, but it also offers a kind of clarity of perspectives on certain dynamics and certain tensions for mm. people. Yeah, Professor Lin, I, I think that's a fascinating point. I, I wonder, is there anything that you would add to that, this question that we can, uh, we, we begin to see uh, this, this black and white vision of the world? Anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, it does seem quite stark, right? So when you're reading the Book of Revelation and, and thinking about that ultimate destination, there is a very uh, definite binary uh, of those, you know, when the dead are judged um, towards the end of the book, you know, either you are belonging to the new world, the new Jerusalem, or you're, you get thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, it, and you, along with the beast and with Satan, etc. And so it does seem like there's this definite binary division. 
I think though that's what what is also fascinating. There are ways to deconstruct that and to see that there are there are in between moments and spaces that aren't accounted for in Revelation. I think that could be quite productive in a different interpretation of the book. So, or a different understanding or attitude towards apocalyptic that it's in in those in between spaces that something is is not accounted for that that could be um not so black and white not so either in or out so when you have the new jerusalem come down there are walls and gates and the gates are open but there's still people outside and the doors aren't Mm. closed so it it seems like and you, you never know quite where you are um i know there's another scholar um that that works on apocalyptic and uh and revelation her name is tina pippen and she writes about the mapping of revelation and how it doesn't there are these strange spaces so i think there's room for for that in between um i think that hasn't been um i think as as focused on as much um in these very dire narratives that we usually associate with apocalypse Mm. i you know as a scholar I, i i wonder what what continues to fascinate you about the book of revelations as you just go further into it i think you talked a little bit about the complexity there but but what else about it um, I, for me, I mean, I think, and Professor Hidalgo's mentioned this, but just the the multitude of ways you can read this and perspectives mm-hmm. that it lends itself to. I mean, there's a there's a a bizarre use of language and aesthetic that has just become so it that is so malleable um, for so many different interpretations that it's fascinating to see I mean it, it really is a text that that asks to be um, taken in whatever direction it seems like and so there's some beautiful things that can come out of it also some very horrifying so I, I think that's that's fascinating to me to see how productive a text in relation to its interpreter can be in creating all sorts of other things um, and really tap our imagination in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, just to, to clarify this, I mean, in terms of the U.S. landscape, is this, is this most prevalent among evangelical Christians or, or Catholics? What, what have you seen? Um, the book of Revelation appears in a number of Catholic contexts, but not in the, the way that we tend to think of it. So I referenced earlier David Sanchez's work. He very much examined how the book of Revelation was mobilized around devotion to the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexican tradition, right? So the representation of Guadalupe is after the woman um, in Revelation 12, and you can see that that's playing with a form of the apocalyptic tradition that's not as focused on a linear march to the end of the world, um, but is playing with a different sort of facet of the revelatory framework about the, the sort of deeper truths, the power of God to enact transformation, and that you sort of see that aspect of the apocalypse appears in ways that are not quite like our dominant assumptions about it. Um, So oftentimes when you're looking at other contexts, this framework of apocalypse might appear, but not necessarily with the same kind of end times uh, where orientation of like, we're definitely picking a date for the end of the world next week. Well, this has been wonderful. I, I've been chatting with Professor Yi Jan Lin of Yale University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.
And Jacqueline Hidalgo, professor at Williams College, has been joining us as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.